Well, hello, and welcome to our Monday Thursday online edition. Um, this Monday Thursday service has always been one of my favorites, one of the most meaningful to me, and I, I long for the years to come when we can gather together and partake of the Lord's table at Flagpole Hill or some other location. But for now, in God's providence, we fast. And as Colin said, it's appropriate to lament that fast. In many ways, lament is appropriate for Maundy Thursday. It, it is, of course, the night that all Jesus' disciples left him and fled, fearing for their own lives and their own reputations. And it's the night we see Jesus himself bowing under the agony of the weight that he carried, even sweating large droplets like blood as he prayed to his father. It's, it's a night, I think, to reflect on our own journey in discipleship, the ways that we have denied our Lord despite our best efforts and commitments to remain steadfast. There is plenty to lament on this night, no doubt. And I suspect that these particular days, you are learning something of lament. But on this occasion, in the history of redemption, and in your living room tonight, there is also reason to hope. Because the whole thrust, the whole liturgical thrust of Maundy Thursday is this. It's movement, not stagnation, not paralyzing fear, but movement. And not just any movement, but a climactic movement of God's anointed one, which draws together all the hope of redemptive history. And that is not overselling the story at all. We know this because the rest of scripture anticipates this great redemptive moment. And that's what Psalm 132 is getting at. As Colin pointed out on Palm Sunday, there is an intentionality to the structure of these psalms of ascents that we've studied. There seems to be meaning to their arrangement in our book of Psalms. So groups of these travel songs are arranged like a playlist, as it were, to orient us to some kind of movement. And as we come to the last set of these songs of ascents, beginning in Psalm 132, it becomes clear that they represent a climax in the journey. They're not laments for life in exile, nor really are they songs for the homeward journey. Instead, they focus on Zion, God's city, where God places his presence among his people. They're songs in which the pilgrim can proclaim, I'm home at last. And so as we consider tonight for a brief moment, a build up to the climactic event in redemptive history, it's appropriate also to consider the movement in this psalm and to consider the movement of Jesus Christ on our behalf reflected therein. It's an upside down kind of movement, really a confusing one, one that seems perhaps unfit for a king because the anointed one moves into obscurity and isolation to bring his people into restfulness and inclusion. Now, that may not be what you expect from a king moving toward victory. 
And yet it becomes clear in the gospel accounts that Jesus moves into obscurity and confusion to bring us rest. In the familiar story from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this theme of much anticipated movement that runs throughout the narrative. The mysterious hero Aslan is said to be on the move, and as you progress throughout the story, you may know there begins to be signs of Aslan on the move. So the eternal disease of winter begins to melt into spring, and Rumors start to churn up excitement, and then finally Aslan appears. But not long after he appears, he begins to move in a strange direction. He moves toward his enemy, not to bring conflict, but to submit, to sacrifice himself, to to die on a table of stone, and onlookers find this movement most curious and most confusing and certainly a cause for lament. Why would the king submit to an evil enemy? Why would he willingly move toward her? Well, you know the story and part of it must be saved for Easter, but it so poignantly illustrates that the movement of the king to bring about his purposes can seem obscure and confusing. I mean, Jesus himself even seems to lament this in his prayer to the Father at Gethsemane. He pleads three times with the Father, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, if there's any way, let it pass. He knows, of course, that this is the plan. He's known it from all eternity. And yet he laments the obscurity and confusion that will undoubtedly ensue in the coming moments. And in Psalm 132, the psalmist captures another climactic moment in history, the movement of the Ark of the Covenant to its resting place in Jerusalem, God's footstool, as it's referred to, the place from which he reigned, the seat of his presence, it was finally moving into God's city. But notice where it dwelt previously. Look back if you've got your Bibles open there at verse 6. We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. I'm guessing those locales are not familiar to you, but the psalmist is describing a search for the ark because God's people had all but abandoned it as central to their liturgical lives under King Saul. And after it was captured by the Philistines and quickly returned, it was sent to a place called Kiriath, Jerim, which means city of the woodlands, or the fields of Jaar, as our psalm calls it, the fields of wood. The psalmist is telling us here, we found the ark of God dwelling in a rather rustic abode. And we're not talking log cabin, rustic chic. It's dwelling in an obscure place not fit to represent its glory. The ark of God, the seat of his presence, sat in obscurity while the people of God waited in darkness and unrest until a new anointed king would renew its centrality. And this anointed one brings hope because he resolves to move the ark 
restoring it from obscurity to its rightful place in the liturgical life of Israel. That's what the opening verses of these Psalms are getting at. They point to King David's resolve, his passion to move the ark into its rightful place in God's city. It's well documented in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that David displays a seemingly undignified passion, a singular resolve to move the ark to the center of Israel's worship. Why? Because it represented God's presence among his people. If it rested in Jerusalem, then so did the Lord David's heart was resolutely set on the centrality of God's presence among his people, and so he moved. And of course, this movement only pointed to a greater one, because Jesus himself moves into obscurity. He walks right into the clutches of his enemy to bring rest, true gospel rest to his people in the presence of their God. You'll recall what we just read a moment ago that he said to his disciples in the garden, Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Resolute, with his face set on what was to come, he rested in the providence of God and he moved. And in this, he's not only moving into obscurity and confusion to bring us rest, but also into isolation to bring our inclusion. Back in Psalm 132, we see this movement, a a procession that is being led by God's anointed one. And this becomes clear in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. There's a liturgical reenactment happening here, a worshipful procession that's being led, and it's grounded in a simple appeal. Look at verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now, who's the anointed one here? It's not David, because the psalmist appeals to David to gain admittance before the face of God. Here, the anointed one is the Davidic king, that is, the descendant of David, who is now occupying the throne. And Solomon, in fact, employs this psalm at the dedication of his temple, the house that he built for the ark to dwell in. Solomon here is the anointed one because of God's covenant with David. And Solomon here knows that this appeal to enter the presence of God is based on the merit of another. How can one stand in the presence of God? before his face, as it were. Solomon appeals to an alien right standing before God. That is, one that is outside of himself, one that is based on the promise of God and on the merit of another. And he does this not only for himself, but also for the whole congregation. Look back at verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy, It's interesting that the psalmist makes this appeal. You might be familiar with the story of what happened to the Ark of God when it was improperly handled by the Levite Uzzah during David's first attempt to bring it up to Jerusalem. So there were very specific instructions for handling the Ark, and most were designed to keep a safe distance, 
a social distance, if you will, between the holiness of God, the holiness of his footstool, and an unholy people. But you'll recall, or you can read about it there in 2 Samuel, what happened when Uzzah reached out his hand to simply steady the ark as it began to topple. He was struck dead. Why? Well, various explanations have been offered, but the sense is clear. It was a violation of the majesty of a holy God for such a one to lay a hand on the ark. The unholy, the unrighteous, cannot come into contact with the righteous without dire consequences. Which is why God's true anointed one would come. And it's why we find him on the move at the climax of the gospel story. Jesus knows. He anticipates and he laments. He knows what must be done in order for God's people to be clothed with righteousness. He knows what he must endure in order to bring about a righteous right standing by which God's people could stand in his presence. The anointed one would have to endure complete isolation. The face of the father whose presence he had enjoyed from all eternity would be turned away. And for the first time in history, he would be alone totally isolated, cut off from the most real fellowship anyone has ever known. Why? To bring about your inclusion. The anointed one was on the move that night toward his enemy for the sake of those who had abandoned him and scattered to save their own skin. He moved toward certain death and agonizing isolation from his father in order that you and I might be reconciled to God and might never be truly alone. You know that, don't you? You may feel in these days more alone than you've ever felt, especially if you live alone. Or maybe even if you don't, maybe you live in a house full of people and you feel alone, but if you are in Christ, you are not alone. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And the Father turned his face away from Christ on the cross so that you might never be cut off. You are not alone. And hope is not lost because the anointed one was on the move that night over 2,000 years ago. And because he is still on the move even now. For in him all things hold together. He is actively governing the universe and he rules and reigns over every force that exists today. And so, Christian, what shall we say to these things? If God and his anointed one are for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or infectious disease, or economic hardship, or social isolation, shall any of these things separate us from the love of God in Christ? No. 
Friends, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ because the anointed one has moved into obscurity to bring you rest and he's moved into isolation to bring your inclusion. So lament this night, but lament in the hope of the coming dawn to be celebrated this Sunday morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are a God on the move and that you sent your son who moved into our brokenness, moved into obscurity, moved in even to isolation and endured agonizing separation for a time on the cross so that he might reconcile us to you. Lord, we lament our separation from one another, but we know that we are not truly alone for we are united by your spirit and we are united to Jesus Christ. And so give us the confidence to endure these days together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.